Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. We do welcome all of you here at Central Campus, also those of you who are joining us online, and those of you who are meeting together at one of our other campuses in Airdrie, Bridgeland, South Calgary, and also Northwest Calgary. In our study in the book of Colossians, uh, we've been unpacking Paul's teaching on what our new life in Christ looks like in the workplace. And we're going to continue with that subject today, and so I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Colossians 3 once again. Now again, just to be clear, when I speak uh, about work, I'm not just referring to being employed at a typical 9-to-5 job. I'm also referring to the work that a homemaker does, that, a, that students do, and also that volunteers do. Really, anyone who takes the gifts, the abilities that God's given to them to make some impact and to bless someone else with. In some cases, people, for any number of legitimate reasons, are unable to work at a 9-to-5 job, but many can still use their talents and abilities to bless others and make our world a better place. Uh, last week, I talked briefly after one of the services with an elderly woman in a wheelchair, and she uh, indicated that she just didn't feel that she had anything worthwhile to uh, contribute anymore. Well, I reminded her that the most important and spiritually rewarding uh, and impacting work that anyone can do, really at any time, is to pray. To pray for others. To pray for our world. To pray that God would pour out his blessing and his favor on his church as we seek to introduce people to Jesus and help them to become fully devoted followers of Jesus. Amen? Amen. The truth is, when we work, we work. But when we pray, God works. And that's powerful. That's impactful. So if there is nothing else you can do physically or anything else, I'm telling you, prayer is the most powerful, impactful thing you can do. Okay, so, speaking of work, I'd like you to turn to the person next to you again, and um, I want you to share with that person about the worst job you've ever had, okay? Now, if you're sitting next to your boss, you may not want to refer to your present job, okay? But anyway, share the worst job you've ever had with the person next to you. Go ahead, take a moment. Some of you have real emotion, I can tell. You don't have to tell the whole story. <laughs> okay. Looks like it was pretty bad. Anyways, I, <laughs> I looked up uh, on the internet 
um, the worst jobs in the world. And oh man, you think your job is bad. One site listed the top worst jobs on the planet, and here's three of them. Number one, a sewer cleaner. Yep, they got a picture of a guy in some country who has to sink down into a sewer full of waste and unplug it one bucket at a time. Lord bless you, yes. (laughs) Or how about the cat food quality tester? For you cat lovers, yes. Which involves tasting cat food to ensure that it's fresh. Now there's a job to die for. And then of course there is the manure inspector, which involves checking manure for contaminants like E. coli and salmonella. Now, if you happen to have one of these jobs or something close to it, uh, my heart goes out to you. I'm glad you're doing it, but I do want to encourage you, and I'm very serious about this, that as gross as your job may be, somebody has to do it, and I want to remind you that all work, even the work you do, is valuable to God because you're helping uh, to make our world a better place. So God bless you, and let's give those people a hand. Now, research tells us that people are not happy with their work. A lot of people are not happy. And that is truly unfortunate. Because in Genesis 1 and 2, we read that God intended work to be a source of blessing, not a curse. However, something went wrong with work. Genesis 3 tells us that God's plan was broken by sin. When our first parents, Adam and Eve, decided to go their own way rather than God's way, their fellowship with God and with one another was fractured. And not only was God's original plan for his creation broken, but so was his plan for work. Sin negatively impacted work in at least three ways. First of all, it made work a struggle. Secondly, it made work futile. And thirdly, it made work an idol. Sin did a real number on work, but that's not the end of the story. You know, the Bible doesn't stop in Genesis 3. It's not the end of the story. We don't have to lose hope because Jesus Christ came and brought meaning back to our work. Oh, make no mistake, God did not remove the painful, sweaty toil of work and some of the frustration that often comes with work, but in Christ, he did replace the meaninglessness. And over the last two weeks, we've been learning how Jesus brings meaning back to our work. First of all, Jesus replaces the struggle of work with his eternal perspective. Look at Colossians 3, verse 23. It says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. You may be mistreated, neglected, or unappreciated at your work. You may may be totally bored with your work. 
But Jesus replaces those struggles by reminding us of his eternal perspective that we are children of the king. That we aren't working for our boss or the applause and the recognition of other people. We are working for the Lord. In fact, the Apostle Paul reminds us when we give our best as an employee, as a homemaker, as a student, and yes, when we are faithful and we do our best as volunteers, we are actually worshiping God through our work in the same way that we give praise to him in a context like this. We're lifting him up. We're glorifying him. Regardless of how insignificant we or others may think our work is, our work really matters to God because we are joining God in taking care of his creation and blessing the people he created as well. Secondly, Jesus brings meaning back to work by replacing the futility of work with his call. Genesis 3.19 says that sin brought the curse of death into the world and death can make our work futile. This is the conclusion that King Solomon came to. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2 he wrote, Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, Everything is meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. He's saying our work is meaningless. It's futile unless there is a God. When Jesus rose from the grave, he not only proved there is a God, but that he is God. And our living Lord brings meaning back to our work by replacing the futility, of, the futility of work with his call. When we put our trust in Jesus and we surrender our lives to him as Lord, he calls us to join him in his mission. His passionate desire to see all people come back in right relationship with God and to be a friend of God. Here in Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul reminds us that we point people to Jesus in the way that we live our lives and relate to our church community and friends, the way we relate to our spouse and family. And then he goes on to say, we also point people to Jesus in the way we relate to people at work. Whether you're an employer or an employee, when you do good work to the best of your ability and you do your work with a Christ-like spirit, when you are loving and kind to those that you work with, when you extend grace to them, when you think the best of them, when you speak well of them, when you give them the benefit of the doubt, when you listen to them, when you pray for them, when they're going through failure or loss, when you bless them with a word or a note of encouragement, people are going to notice. And one day, they're going to ask you, 
why you are the way you are. This past week, a fellow shared his testimony, a fellow that I'm in a discipleship relationship with. He's from another religion, was. And he shared how a co-worker's Christ-like spirit was used by God to draw him to Jesus and the good news of Jesus. You may be feeling that your work is futile, but have you ever considered that God has you where you are at this point in time to fulfill his calling, which is to point people to Jesus? If we really understand and get that, our work will never feel futile again. And that brings us to the third and final way that Jesus brings meaning back to work. Jesus came not only to replace the struggle of work with his eternal perspective, he came not only to replace the futility of work through his call on our lives, but he also came to replace our tendency to idolize our work with his love and acceptance. A number of years ago, Madonna said this in Vogue magazine. This is what my music is all about. Every time I accomplish something great, I feel like a special human being. But after a while, I feel mediocre and uninteresting again, and I find I have to get past this again and again. My drive in life is from the horrible fear of being mediocre. And I have to prove to myself and others that I am somebody. Do you hear her struggle? She's saying the only meaning she has in life comes from what she does. From proving to others, primarily through her music, that she is somebody worthwhile. When she succeeds at something, she feels a sense of worth and satisfaction. But this feeling quickly wears off. And like a drug addict, she needs another dose of the drug of achievement. She must prove herself again and again. And in another interview with Vanity Fair, she concluded this statement by saying, I think this is something that I'll be doing the rest of my life. Tim Keller tells of a friend who reached the top of his profession, but an addiction forced him to resign his position and to enter into a period of rehabilitation. And he became addicted in part because of the expectation that he should always be productive, dynamic, upbeat, and brilliant. But he refused to blame his work or other people's demands for his collapse. He said this to Tim. Listen carefully. He said, my life was built on two premises. The first was that I could control other people's opinion and approval of me through my performance. 
The second was this. That was all that mattered in my life. You know, church, God intended work to be a good thing. But when a good thing becomes the ultimate thing in life, it becomes an idol. And make no mistake, when we put anything before God, we are steamrolling toward great despair, immense grief, and regret in our lives. Which takes us back to our scripture lesson here in Colossians 3. And I look at verse 23 again. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. Not for human masters, since you know you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. In this passage, Paul really gets at the motivation behind our work. And he's essentially warning us that if you are working for any other reason than to serve and glorify Christ, if it's about you, then true contentment will elude you not only in your work, but in your life. And you will miss God's very best for you. You see, one of the great temptations we face in our fallen world is to see our work as a way to bring glory to ourselves. To see our work as the basis of our meaning and our identity and our value in life. Our identity and meaning comes to us in one of two ways. We either find our identity in who God says we are or we make our identity through what others say or who others say we are. In James chapter 3, James describes these two sources of wisdom. I'm going to invite you to turn to James 3 and just keep your Bibles open at this passage. We're looking at verse 14. This is what it says. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. James writes, there are two sources of wisdom, two overarching philosophies of life that we can base our life on. Earthly wisdom, heavenly wisdom. Earthly wisdom, he says, is false wisdom. Heavenly wisdom, on the other hand, is true wisdom. Earthly wisdom is based on the premise that this world is all that there is, that this life is all that there is. There is no afterlife, which means you have only one shot at life, and it's all about you. 
So you better eat, drink, and be merry and do whatever you have to do to achieve your dreams and your aspirations. Tomorrow you could die. And it'll all be over. So live for today. Don't be overly concerned about racking up debt. Don't be overly concerned if you have to step on a few other people in order to get what you want, whatever it is you're after. Don't let guilt or some old school religious morality stop you from living fully in the moment. No, go for it. You may never have this opportunity again. And James describes this earthly wisdom as demonic. And in James chapter 2, if you go back just one chapter, verse 19, he explains what he means by that. He says, demons, they actually believe in God. And they shudder. But they believe in God. The problem is, is they don't and won't submit to God. And the reason for that is, is because they want to be worshipped rather than worshipping the true and the living God. And James says, this is the deception in earthly wisdom. The notion that we can be our own God, that we can run our own show. But here's the problem with earthly wisdom. If I don't believe in God, if I believe that I'm a product of chance, then obviously I can't find my identity and my significance in God because I don't believe he exists. Which means I'm going to have to find my value apart from God. And Brian Clark says, in the earthly kingdom, the way that we determine our value and significance is by competing and comparing ourselves with one another. And the way we keep score is by the symbols of success that we accumulate. The clothes we wear, the titles we aspire for, the degrees that we have, the status of our jobs, the house, the community we live in, the money we have, how well known and admired we are, the influence we have. In short, all the things in our culture that say you matter more than somebody else. You know, in Genesis 11, we read the story of the Tower of Babel. In verse 4, we read that the primary reason that they wanted to build this magnificent wonder of the world was, and I quote, so that we may make a name for ourselves. The motivation that these ancient people had for building the tower is the same motivation that some people have today for doing their work. And that is to make a name for themselves. Which fundamentally is pride. It's idolatry, but it fundamentally is pride. C.S. Lewis describes the problem of pride this way. He says, now what I want you to get clear is that pride is competitive by its very nature. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something. 
only out of having more of it than the next person. We say people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. Now, this earthly spirit of competitive pride is lethal to work. Tim Keller, in his book, Every Good Endeavor, points out that many college students no longer choose work that actually fits their abilities, their talents, and their capacities. But they would rather choose work that, in their minds, boosts their self-image or their status. Furthermore, they no longer choose work that helps other people flourish. No, they choose work that helps them to flourish, to feel important, to feel noticed, to feel valuable. One young man explained it this way. I realized that if I stayed in education, I'd be embarrassed when I got to my five-year college reunion. And so I'm going to law school now. Do you begin to understand what James means when he says here that this earthly wisdom leads to envy, selfish ambition, disorder, and every evil practice? I mean, think about it. When someone we know, particularly someone in the same line of work that we're in, gets promoted or receives a huge commendation in, in front of the, um, the corporation executives and staff. Why do we find it so hard to celebrate their success and their achievements? Why will we even lose sleep over that? Or when we hear, let's, let's flip it. When we hear someone like this person that's an associate of ours we hear someone had a moral failure or perhaps some other major failure. Why does a perverse sense of joy well up inside of us at their failure or their loss? And why do we take great delight in passing on this heartbreaking news to other people? Why do we push ourselves? Why do we push our spouses or our children to go into careers or positions which they aren't at all suited for. But because these careers, these positions, have an aura of status in our culture. You see, if the highest ambition of your life is to further your interests, to get people to notice you, to get people to look up to you and admire you. In short, to get people to, dare I say it, worship you. Then not only will you be constantly driven to be the best at the cost of fun, at the cost of friends, at the cost of family time, but bitter envy will be directed toward anyone who gets more attention 
or achieves a higher level of success than you do. And that will lead to all kinds of insecurity and fears within you. It'll tempt you to discriminate and to judge others unfairly or to use your tongue to slander other people. For example, if your identity rests on being the best mom, now it could be the best anything, you know, the best plumber, the best lawyer, the best teacher. But let's just as an example, if your identity rests on you being the best mom, and someone comes along that you kind of look up to or that you really appreciate, comes along and says uh, about another mother, oh my, wow, she is the best mother that I know. Envy is going to rise up inside of you like a raging fire. And you're going to be ever so tempted to say something like, well, let me tell you, even though she may appear to be an amazing mother in public, I've been told that at home she's a control freak and that her kids are going to need some serious therapy one day. See, this is the disorder, the restlessness, the chaos, the envy that characterizes those who follow earthly wisdom. Which leads us to ask, well, so what is the alternative? Well, the alternative is Jesus, amen? The alternative is Jesus and his heavenly wisdom. In verse 17, James says, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. And then if you look at all the other characteristics there that the Holy Spirit begins to actually develop in us as we make him the center of our lives. The Holy Spirit begins to develop a peace-loving nature in us, consideration, a spirit of submission, full of mercy, good fruit, impartiality and sincerity. The heavenly wisdom that James talks about is built on the premise that God, not us, but God is the center of the universe. Yes, God loves us. He's for us. He has our best interests at heart in all things, but God doesn't exist for us. He doesn't exist for, you know, to make us happy, you know, to meet all of our dreams in life. It's not about us. It's about him. <laughs> However, when we put our trust in him as our Lord and Savior, and we daily cultivate a friendship with him and live in humble dependence upon him, not only will we be blessed from that relationship, but we will find true meaning, value, and satisfaction in our life and also in our work. You see, when God says, worship me, when he says, praise me, delight in me, rejoice in me, he's not some insecure despot begging for compliments. No, he knows that if we put ourselves at the center of the universe, if we make this life and our work all about us, if we worship anyone or anything other than him, then when we come to the end of life and we find ourselves running out of energy 
And we realize that we can't compete like we used to. And then we go through the agony of being replaced by others at work. And we see in a matter of a year or two that our accomplishments are largely forgotten. We're going to get somewhat miserable because everything in this life that we sought after, that we based our worth upon, is like the wind. It doesn't last. It's gone. Unless there is a God. When we put God in his rightful place at the center of our lives and we make him the object of our highest affection, all that changes. Jesus says your identity is no longer found in your work or other temporary things. It is found in me. The Apostle Paul describes our identity in Christ this way. 1 Peter 2.9. He says, but you are a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare. This is why you're chosen, folks. That you may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And Jesus says, because of what I have done for you through my death and resurrection, you are a child of the living God, and you are loved and accepted by the living God. Therefore, stop working to bolster your self-esteem and your self-worth and to construct your own meaning in life. No, simply do your work for Jesus, bless other people, help others, and do your work to point other people to Jesus. When it comes to choosing what work we will do, and hear me clearly on this, folks, when it comes to choosing the work that we do, don't ask what will give me the most status and the most recognition and the most money. No, ask how can I use what God has given to me the money, the abilities, the talents he's given me. How can I use these gifts God's given me to be of the greatest service to other people practically and spiritually? And church, G James implies here, this change of perspective is the foundation of true wisdom that comes from our Father in heaven. Notice in verse 17, he says, the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure. He's not referring to sexual purity here, as important as that is. He's referring to purity of the heart. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. The word pure has two basic meanings in the original language. To be clean, and to pursue one thing. The first is to be clean. 
To be pure in heart means to be clean, to be forgiven, to be set free by God from all of our sins, the regrets of our past. James is saying the entrance into God's heavenly kingdom begins when we acknowledge that I can't perform well enough to please God. I can't merit favor with God. I can't save myself. And you see, that's the big stumbling block of proud people in our world. You know, tell me to climb the highest mountain and I'll do it if that's what it's going to take, you know, to be in your, gra- in, in your good graces, God. But what? You just simply want me to embrace by faith, to trust you that you've done the work for me? Ah, that's too easy. Can't do that. Won't do that. He's saying true wisdom, God's wisdom begins. When I believe and humbly accept that what Jesus did on the cross, he did on the cross what I could not do for myself. That he not only forgave me and cleansed me from all of my sins, but by his grace, he made a way for me to be reconciled with my heavenly father who is the source of my salvation, my identity, significance, and value. Which, by the way, is what God intended in the first place when he created our first parents, Adam and Eve. You see, my significance is not rooted in my performance or in how I compare with others. No, it's rooted in my relationship with Jesus Christ. And no one can touch that or change that or mess with that. No one. And that changes everything. Every day now is not about trying to find value and significance by somehow winning the admiration and applause of other people by what I do. Rather, because my identity is firmly established in Jesus Christ, I am free to live my life differently from those who are part of the earthly kingdom. Rather than competing with you, And always comparing myself with you. Because my value and my significance is in Christ, I am now free to love you. I am now free to celebrate your achievements, to encourage and to cheerlead you, and to thank God for you and how he's using you to make a difference in his kingdom. James says true wisdom starts here with a heart that's pure, a heart that's forgiven. But pure in heart not only means to be clean, it means to be forgiven. It also means to pursue only one thing. The way to kill idolatry in our lives the way to experience all the faith-building adventures that God has in store for us is to pursue only one thing. And that is our loving, trusting Jesus. Living all out for him. And as you do, you're going to discover that true contentment and rest 
You're not going to discover that not only in your life, but you're going to discover it in your work. I'll close with this. In the classic movie, Chariots of Fire, we're introduced to two Olympian sprinters who have totally different perspectives on life and their work as athletes. The one would really, his philosophy would be defined by the wisdom of this world. Be earthly wisdom. The other, by heavenly wisdom. When asked why he runs, the one Olympian said, he does it not because he loves it, but to justify his existence. Before running the 100-meter Olympic event, he said with a sigh, contentment. I'm 24 and I've never known it. I'm forever in pursuit and I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? The other Olympic sprinter had such a deep trust and rest in Christ that he had no problem missing a race in which he likely would have won a gold medal because of his conviction to honor God by not running on Sunday. The first Olympian had to get a medal to justify his worth. The second Olympic, Olympian, Eric Lytle, he ran in hopes of winning a medal as well. But he didn't do it as a way to prove his value or his worth. No, he did it for the joy of running itself and to glorify God who gave him the ability to do so. Whether he won Olympic medals or not wasn't the main thing for him. He told his sister that God had simply made him fast. And when I run, he said, I feel his pleasure. You see, unlike the other Olympian, Eric had found his true rest in God. In Hebrews 4.9, the writer puts it this way. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from His. In other words, when you have the assurance that not only are you a child of God by faith in Him, but that you are loved and accepted by God. Your soul is going to know true rest. You're going to know the rest of God. And you will begin to see your work as life-giving rather than as a source of frustration, hurt, pain, insecurity, anxiety, fear. Kevin Kim says, you will be set free from the burden 
of being seen as successful, the burden of being one up on others, the burden to define yourself by your position at work, the burden to prove your value and your identity through your work, and the burden to create meaning for yourself through your work. The good news of Jesus frees you from all of that because on the authority of Jesus and his eternal written word, you know to the core of your being, you already have the approval of the only one who really matters, and that is the Lord God Almighty. And as you rest in His approval and make Him your primary focus and the object of your highest affection, your work is no longer going to be about you. No, your work is going to be an act of worship to God and an expression of your love and your trust in Him. May it be so to the glory of God and for the sake of a world who needs the Jesus that we know and love. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Let's just take a moment. Let's go to God. Let's open our hands to Him. Just ask Him those two questions. Lord Jesus, what are you saying to me? what is it you want me to do about it? What's a lie you want me to renounce? What's a promise you want me to embrace? What's a step you want me to take? What's an attitude you want me to change? Father, we thank and praise you again for your amazing love demonstrated to us through the sacrificial death of your son, Jesus. Thank you for redeeming us, for giving us dignity, for bringing meaning back to our life, to our work. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who's still rejecting you or keeping you at an arm's length in their lives. I pray that through our time in the scriptures, they will have come to see, perhaps in a new way, Lord, that life and work, everything really is meaningless without you. May today be the day that they open their lives to you by faith and commit to following you as their Lord and Savior. 
pray for those who are struggling in their work situation, for those who are feeling unappreciated, who are feeling that they're just putting in time. Lord, help them to do the best that they possibly can and to remember that they're doing it for you. Encourage them today, Lord, with the promise that their work matters to you, that you have placed them where they are for a purpose. And Lord, that whatever we do in Jesus' name is not in vain. I pray for those who are seeking employment. Lord, that you would honor their sincerity and you would help them find work. I pray for our economy. Lord, that your favor would rest with people as they create jobs so that people can find meaningful work. And Lord, as people wait to find work, that you would remind them that your calling for them hasn't changed, that you would use, that you will use them through their life, through their volunteer service to encourage and impact the lives of many. And then, Lord, I pray for anyone who is fearful, who's anxious, who's burdened or frustrated by their work because they have made their work an idol. Oh, Lord, you died to set us free from the burden of needing to prove ourselves through our work, through our success. And so I pray that we would find true rest in you by surrendering our lives to you and seeking your approval only. And Lord, I pray once again that in all things, we would do our work to the best of our ability, be it paid or unpaid work. That we would do it with your calling in mind. That we would do it with enthusiasm and a love and a sensitivity to others. And most importantly, that we would do it as unto you. For your glory and for the sake of those who need the Jesus that we know and love. For we pray it in the precious name of Jesus. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. 